Hello and welcome to another From the Vault episode of the Interim Champion Boxing Podcast with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kira Mulvaney. This coming Monday is President's Day in the United States. And what better way to honor it than with one of Eric's classic oral history podcasts from HBO Days, a fighter who carried the nickname President in a way that, depending on your perspective on politicians, might have been horrible or entirely appropriate. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good setup. Yes, this is this is uh, the, the second of the four oral history style podcasts produced for the HBO Boxing Podcast. This episode was titled Unrealized, the story of Ike Bayabuchi, the great lost heavyweight. And it was the only one of the four oral history pods that focused on a fighter rather than a fight. And uh, yeah, this is uh, the perfect time to celebrate boxing's president uh although maybe maybe celebrate is the wrong word yeah. but uh, still a fine time to revisit the ike bayabuchi story so uh, have a listen and then discuss amongst yourselves whether he would be the worst candidate if he were running for president in 2024 <laughs> we, bo- we both we both went for different angles at the same general uh, point <laughs> of humor there uh originally released by hbo in 2017 now presented again for the interim champion boxing podcast this is unrealized Good left hook, Ibeabuchi. Another good left hook. And a third. He was a prodigy. I mean, he, he had amazing power. He had fierce determination, and, and, and he had no fear of anybody, and he believed that he was the king, that no one could beat him. And Berg is wounded. Brown loves it. Mr. President. He'd walk into the ring, and it was, you, you would like almost have this sort of vision of like a bull you know, coming out of Matador with like the steam coming out of the nostrils kind of thing. Fantastic battle. I've never seen two big men hammer at each other like, quite like that, Jim. Unfortunately, here was a very scary man both in and out of the ring. Ron Roll stops it. Ike Ibeabuti has knocked Chris Bird out. I'm ready. I'm now ready for the heavyweight championship of the world. To the names of Andrew Galata, slightly tarnished, and David Tua, now slightly tarnished as well, add the name Ike Ibeabuchi as one of the young heavyweights who will be in or near the title picture apparently for years to come. And it's un- you know it's unfortunate that we, we ne- we'll never know what could have been. Ike Ibeabuchi. No heavyweight of his generation possessed more ability. No heavyweight of his generation possessed less stability. 20 years ago, on June 7, 1997, the six foot two, 235 pound Nigerian born heavyweight known as the president declared his candidacy with an upset win over David Tua in a brawl that shattered CompuBox records. And 21 months later, Ibeabuchi confirmed that he was indeed the best up and coming heavyweight on the planet by knocking out Chris Bird. He was 20 and 0 with 15 knockouts, only 26 years old, and he never fought again. I'm Eric Raskin, and this is Unrealized, the story of Ike Bayabuchi, the great lost heavyweight, presented by the HBO Boxing Podcast. Ike Bayabuchi came to the U.S. from his native Nigeria in 1993 at the age of 19, settling in Dallas, Texas. 
He made his pro boxing debut a little less than two years later, on October 13, 1994, at the age of 21. And over the next two and a half years, he kept a busy schedule, fighting roughly every other month, often on promoter Cedric Kushner's heavyweight explosion shows, sharing cards with the likes of Hasim Rahman, Lehman Brewster, and Larry Donald. Facing nondescript opposition, Ibeabuchi stormed out to a 16-0 record, 12 wins by knockout, and caught the eye of then-HBO Sports Senior Vice President Luda Bella. Heavyweight Explosion was sort of his developmental series for heavyweights, and I would go to the shows regularly, and it's a place that I would find heavyweights to use on HBO as opponents and to match up as prospects. And I went to a couple of these heavyweight explosions where Cedric had me there really to look at other fighters. You know, really wasn't hadn't mentioned Ibuchi to me, but you know, the first couple of times I saw Ibuchi, I was like, this guy's like got like you know torrential sort of um, output of, of punches and and very physically strong and just looks scary. I'm like Cedric, this is the guy I think you should be pushing. You know, like I don't like let's find out how 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 well this guy can fight. You know, because like I'm more interested in this guy than a number of other guys he was trying to sort of point off on me for boxing after dark. Ibeabuchi was the one that was the most attractive to me. Ibeabuchi was a complete unknown to almost everyone in boxing when he signed on to fight David Tua in a Boxing After Dark main event in 1997. HBO blow-by-blow broadcaster Jim Lampley admits he'd never heard of Ibeabuchi before that fight was made and had to make a specific point to train himself to say Ibeabuchi on air instead of repeating the incorrect pronunciation that most people were using, Ibeabuchi. The heavyweight division, at the time, was loaded with names that even people who hardly ever watched boxing knew quite well. Evander Holyfield was more or less considered the man after his November 96 win over Mike Tyson, and their infamous bite fight rematch was a few weeks away. 48-year-old George Foreman was technically the lineal champion, and Lennox Lewis held a belt and was entering his peak years under the guidance of Emmanuel Stewart. Creeping up on those household names was David Tua a New Zealand-based Samoan heavyweight with a record of 27-0, 23 knockouts, only 24 years old, just like Ibeabuchi. He was perceived as the next big thing in the division and presumed to be a favorite over Ibeabuchi. He'd already scored four knockout wins on HBO over legit up-and-coming opposition, John Ruiz, Daryl Wilson, David Izanrite, and Oleg Maskayev. Former Ring Magazine senior writer Bill Detloff was among the many convinced he was seeing something special in Tua. Tua was going to be the next Tyson. If you like guys who could punch, Tua was your guy. Tua was Tyson without the psychopathy. HBO was doing this uh, tournament with all these young heavyweights, and Tua was the guy blowing everybody else out of the ring. You know, He had his faults. Uh, he walked around after guys for a while. It took him a long time to get rid of Azan Rite and, and Moscow also. Um, but when he connected, you went bye-bye. Uh, he did it, uh, of course, really early with Ruiz, he did it very early with Dara Wilson, and there was no reason to think in my mind that uh, anybody who hit wasn't going to go. The guy could uh, really crack with the left hook. He was uh, going to be the next Mike Tyson, and there was no reason to think otherwise at the time. Even Mike Tyson, though, never took part in a 12-round war like this. Let's go back to Ibeabuchi versus Tua, June 7, 1997, at the Arco Arena in Sacramento, California, where Ibeabuchi got out to an insanely fast start throwing 91 punches in round one, according to CompuBox, 91 again in round two, and 95 in round three. Obscene numbers for a heavyweight. And again, Abeyabuchi just keeps throwing. It was Tua who said, 
I should throw enough punches that my offense is my defense. So far, it is Ibeabuchi who is constructing exactly that fight plan. Ike Ibeabuchi looking for a huge upset over rising prospect David Tua. And so far, Ibeabuchi winning the first three rounds, at least in our eyes. Watch it, hold it. As he Watch doubles it Tua in that. punch output. Ibeabuchi slowed in the middle rounds, and Tua came on and seemed to sweep rounds five through seven. But soon they were trading on even terms. Here's the audio from the corners heading into the 12th and final round of a fight that seemed up for grabs. You'll hear Ronnie Shields in Tua's corner, then Hall of Fame former welterweight champ Curtis Cokes in Ike's, then Lou Duva in Tua's corner, followed by Cokes again. Tua! That Tua! Look, the last round, baby! This is going to decide to fight this round. This round decides to fight, baby! Tua! You just got to keep throwing punches like that, okay? Look! Tua, you can do this, baby! I promise you, you can do this. I know you can. You got to go for broke. Three minutes of hell. Last round, eh? you in good shape. Keep your hands up and throw punches in God we trust. Okay? Let me get a couple times out there. Now let me see you hurt him next time again. You want the fight? You want to be champion, baby? You want to be champion? They get the hell out there. All this hard work you got. You got to go now. This is also taken, man. You got to go out here and fight this motherfucker, okay? Give me the mouthpiece. Give me the mouthpiece. Suck it up. Suck it up. Okay, Fire hard. You're not, you're not hitting hard with your hook in your right hand. Come on, you hit hard with that. Hey, this is the championship. Oh, they gotta go out there. Come on. What a fight. And as they come out for the 12th, Ike Bayabuchi smiles at David Tua and nods as if to say, hey, you are some man. By the final bell, Ibeabuchi and Tua had combined to throw 1,730 punches, breaking the heavyweight record set by Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier in their third fight when they combined for 1,591 punches in 14 rounds, two rounds more than Ibeabuchi and Tua had to work with. Ike threw 975 punches, the most ever by a single heavyweight in a 12-round fight, and that greater activity propelled him to a decision win by scores of 115-114, 116-113, and a far too wide 117-111. Detloff reflects 20 years later. The thing that stands out about it today to me is the one thing that it lacked, and that was the drama of either guy being hurt. And that's really saying something when you consider uh, the number of punches, particularly that Tua landed. He was credited with landing 282 punches. That should have told us what was going on with Ike. What kind of lunatic gets hit 282 times by David Tua and is still able to speak after 12 rounds? David Tua hits a guy 200 times, the guy's going to go, right? But I don't ever recall uh, seeing uh, Ike hurt at any time against Tua, and he walked through the guy's biggest left hooks all night. Ibeabuchi had come from out of nowhere to become one of boxing's hottest commodities. Unfortunately, he didn't fight again for 13 months. Outside the ring problems, serious outside the ring problems, disrupted his rise. I had hoped to speak with Ibeabuchi's trainer, Curtis Cokes, for this podcast, and I came close to tracking him down, even getting a hold of his son, Vince, who told me he'd try to get his dad on the phone for me, but I never got beyond that point. I did, however, interview Curtis 18 years ago for an article that ran in the December 1999 issue of Ring Magazine. Cokes told me then, quote, after the Tua fight, Ike changed completely. We always knew he had some problems, even before the Tua fight, but they were never that serious, and they were always kept quiet. But since then, Ike's been thinking he can do whatever he wants. 
His biggest problem is that he just doesn't obey the rules. He wants to break the law. A lot of times, I'll ride in the car with him, and he'll drive real fast. I'll tell him, slow down, this isn't Nigeria, we have different rules here, and you're going to get yourself a ticket. Or he'll go to the barber shop, get a haircut, and then he'll just walk out without paying. Of course, we know the barber, so we go back there and pay the guy, but Ike doesn't get it. He needs help, and he and his family don't see that. He thinks everybody's after him. If Ike looks in the mirror, he'll see the real problem. Something's wrong with Ike. Ray Charles could see that. Well, he's the only fighter I've ever worked with who is mentally ill. Those blunt words come courtesy of Eric Botcher, who became a matchmaker for Kushner Promotions in 1997, shortly after the Tua fight. The cliché when you work with certain fighters, oh, he's crazy, he's nuts, because, you know, they they uh, they uh, misbehave and they do things that normal people wouldn't do. But Ibiabuchi was mentally ill and um, was a dangerous person and made a lot of people around him uncomfortable because of that. I mean, I knew that from the beginning and questioned why we were even promoting him. I had a conversation one day with Cedric. I said, you know, when he was trying to get him out of jail the first time, I said, do you really want to be on ESPN one day as the promoter of the world heavyweight champion who murdered somebody? You know, because this guy is very capable of doing that. And, you know, because he's an athlete and because he can produce money, you know, everyone um, that saw that end of him work to, you know, get him out of the situations that he put himself in. And, you know, it was the wrong thing to do. I was point blank. I said, this guy's crazy. He's going to hurt somebody. Um, you know, I don't want it to be me or you or anybody else, but he's quite capable of killing somebody. Producing quality podcast content like this doesn't come easy. And we are, oh, so very poor. So if you would like to listen to the rest of this, please click the necessary button and subscribe.